Good morning. So in talking about um, wholesome karma or unwholesome karma, that there's been a focus on unwholesome karma and what might wholesome karma look like. How is that passed on? It's really passed on in the same way. But the Buddha did make a distinction between kusala and akusala, what it was to to um, to generate the fruits of wholesome karma, which had to do with harmony, and to generate the fruits of unwholesome karma, which had to do with harm or separation. So living, so so the root confusion that generates unwholesome karma is believing that we're separate, is acting from separation. Now, we can believe we're separate and actually generate wholesome karma. Um, If we are not grasping the separation and the wholesome karma... So, and I'll say more about that. Because there's, there's two ways of talking about karma. One is, there's more than two ways, but the two big ways we tend to bring together in Zen is the way it was talked about by the Buddha, which is in terms of our ethical behavior, our action, and how we pass on these, how we plant new karmic seeds with our behavior, which then come to fruition, and our response to that fruition either generates more seeds or it doesn't. And one way that we interrupt the unconscious regeneration of that is zazen, is sitting down and training a mind to be still with fruits. And we may say, well, why would we want to interrupt the replanting of wholesome karma? Not so much that we wouldn't want to interrupt it, but we would want to become aware of it. We'd want to become conscious of it. We might want to actually be still and have the fruits of unwholesome karma arise and not do anything about them and let that fall away and not recede. With the arising of wholesome karma, we may want to act on that in a wholesome way and and replant them. But we want to be conscious of that process. Because the other way of talking about karma is that we are forever in a karmically conditioned mind. In other words, the mind that we're dealing with is a karmically conditioned mind. So we're always dealing with our karmic conditioning. We're always in the middle of it. We're acting from karmic conditioning. So that creates an interesting situation where if I'm conditioned entirely, how then do I know what karma is wholesome and what karma is unwholesome? If I've inherited the whole thing, how do I know which one's which? And this is an interesting thing to ask ourselves personally. Like, what's our verification process for knowing when we are cultivating harmony and when we're potentially unknowingly cultivating harm? When we're knowingly cultivating harm, we can get pretty clear pretty quickly if we want to. 
but we can unknowingly do it all the time and not know it, just based on the way our mind has been conditioned to think about things. And within the limits of our mind, we may see an act as a good one, and actually we're not paying attention to the way that act is received. And then we're planting unwholesome karma while thinking we're being wholesome all the time. So our seeing is limited. So this brings us back to that stillness of the fruits arising, but not just the fruits arising and being still with it, but also paying attention to the way it lands with the people around us, the context we're in. So we really are... The fruits and seed, the way the, the way the Buddha used this kind of agrarian metaphor is really useful in a way because we're paying attention to the integrity of the seed, the process, the planting, the soil it's being planted in, and how it's coming back. And so the whole thing matters, not just some kind of individual causal line that I see myself as being in. But the question still comes down to, how do I know? How do I know what is wholesome? And this comes to um, really to the center of Buddhist practice itself. Because there is something, and we've talked about this a little bit before, there's something that um, when we are still and we see unwholesome fruits arise and we're still with it and we wait something comes up, and if we're ethically committed, maybe another unwholesome fruit comes up or another unwholesome fruit comes up. But at some point, we have a sense of... And this sense is clarified with practice over time, of what is a wholesome response. So when we look at the way we talk about the precepts, we have this way of talking about the precepts in Buddhism where we say... The precepts are a practice, but it's also an expression of a bodhisattva. So in other words, those of us are an expression of a Buddha. So in other words, for those of us who are unclear about our wholesome and unwholesome behavior, we practice the precepts. And we practice them and practice them. But if somebody is totally awake, they would naturally practice the precepts. They wouldn't have to practice the precepts. They would express the precepts. So, and when we're in the times that we're awake, we express the precepts. So that means, that, that kind of points to something, which is the natural functioning of reality abides by the precepts. For this to be the case, then there has to be something. Independent co-arising, when it's not split up from all of our ideas of separation, manifests as us in accord with the precepts. If that weren't the case, then this whole idea of practicing and then we finally express it would make no sense. Not only that, but what would not make sense is the whole process of awakening. Just because we see the roots of our unwholesome karma does not necessitate that they fall away. And yet, we've all had the experience that when we see the roots clearly, they fall away. It's not just, 
It's not simply, okay, I'm going to do this wholesome thing. This is true, too. I'm going to do this wholesome thing, wholesome thing, wholesome thing, wholesome thing, and that's going to eventually overwhelm the unwholesome. That is one that has an effect. But the deeper turn happens when we see the unwholesome root for what it is. We see the unwholesome root for what it is, and suddenly we're not interested anymore because we see it clearly as something that causes us harm and causes others harm. But, you know, the, the, what the Buddha said, had to say about this was, well, people want happiness and they don't want unhappiness, and that's why they make the shift. True. And that is true. We want happiness and we don't want unhappiness. But then what do we mean by that? And I think in the deepest sense of that understanding is we deeply desire to be in accord with the natural functioning of life, with dependent co-arising, with the way things interact and support each other without these false senses of separation. That's what our heart, that's what our lives desire in the deepest sense. And so in practicing the wholesome, we're practicing in accord with dependent co-arising. Practicing in the unwholesome, we're not practicing in accord with dependent co-arising. But how we know the difference in the long run, when we practice, when we take the time to look, we may not know if we're not practicing because we're not looking. And we're not being still with our own conditioning Sometimes not even long enough to know the difference between unwholesome and wholesome karma. We're just acting out our conditioning, whatever it is. But if we're still and we begin to look, then this comes up and, and I am in fact dependently co-arising. That is always happening. So anything that is crashing against my realizing and expressing that is going to feel terrible is going to create harm. It's going to tear at the natural dynamic flow of existence. And this doesn't mean that things don't happen, that we, you know, suddenly everything's peachy. It doesn't mean that people still die, people still, these things happen. So there's a discernment between what it is to be life and what it is to resist life. We still have work to do in understanding our own. We constantly have work to do in understanding our mind's resistance to being interconnected life. And so much of our unwholesome karma arises from not wanting to surrender to the wholeness of interconnected life. To be that. So that puts us in a situation of Through this understanding of what is wholesome, what I'm doing, I treat a person in a particular way in a particular circumstance, or, or I grew up in a context and this is what wholesome activity was in that context and this was passed to me. And maybe that is wholesome activity everywhere. That may be true. But we can't 100% know because we weren't born in all contexts. We weren't born in infinite contexts. We were born in a couple, maybe three or four. 
And we have learned that wholesomeness, and it's been given to us, and we need to appreciate it and honor it and respect it completely and pay close attention to it. Because we don't know how it translates. We don't know how it lands in all contexts. We don't know. And if we grasp onto it as true, always, then we tear it from the dynamic existence of life. It now is ripped into separation as an ultimate truth rather than something that is contextually flowing as life itself. Is all this following so far? And um, no, some people say no. Well, we'll keep. I'll keep trying. No, let me know if you have a. Let me know. Please break the silence. Let me know if you have a particular question or thought. But um, so there's this. So that's why the silence is so important. Regardless of the wholesome or unwholesome, or what we think is good or what we think is bad, or all of these things, there's so much going on, there's so much conditioning. There's so much... There is no set of wholesome conditions that we can anchor as the absolute truth in every situation. If we say the word kindness, what is kind changes so radically. The intention toward kindness can be always there. But an intention toward kindness then means I have to pay attention to all this stuff. I have to pay attention to what's coming up in me. I have to pay attention to the context I'm in. I have to pay attention to power dynamics, to the history of a country. There are many things to attend to to be kind. And so to simply say this is what kindness looks like is kind of a violent act. Kindness looks like this everywhere. And so I'm just going to keep doing this relentlessly, regardless of the feedback I am given. (laughs) Because that's what kindness is. There is a case that Shokuchi sent me recently that really is great with this particular thing. And at first it may make no sense, but I promise it will eventually. <laughs> you just explained it really well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's go ahead. No. no. So Rishan asked Yangshan, this is case thirty seven of the book The Serenity, which is a collection of Chinese um Chan or Zen Discussions of engagements between monks. Guishan asked Yangshan, if someone suddenly said, all sentient beings just have active, so all sentient beings just have active consciousness, boundless and unclear, with no fundamental to rely on. So let me rephrase that. If all sentient beings just have karmic consciousness, if they just have a a conditioned consciousness that is both boundless and unclear to them, What foundation are they going to rely on? Where do you land? And if that's the case, 
Here it says, how would you prove it in experience? But the question means, like, how would you inquire into that monk's experience? What would you ask them? How would you clarify that with them if they have this boundless, unclear karmic consciousness that has nowhere to land? And then he turns around and says, if, a monk, if that monk came, I would say, hey, you. And if that monk turns his head, I would say, what is it? And if he hesitates, I would say the same thing. Not only is their karmic consciousness boundless and unclear, they have no foundation to rely on. So, to live a life knowing that everything that I am utilizing to understand that life is completely conditioned. That is an easy thing to say. But we have this urge to pull out from all of the conditions the truth that we're going to set up shop on. And we are going to use that to assess the world, act in the world, be in the world. And then we're done. We've kind of, we've literally stopped our ethical process at that moment. We cease, in a very real way, to be moral beings. This is why we have, we have precepts that cannot be fulfilled. This is why we say, I vow not to kill, even though we know there's no way not to kill. It's not to let us off the hook. It's to actually put us perpetually on the hook. Because if I believe a precept can be fulfilled, I vow not to kill, and I believe that's the case, then you see what begins to happen. What begins to happen in that way of understanding the precept is, what is killing? Who is killing? Okay, so what I'm really saying is that I vow not to kill humans. Okay, who is a human and who's not a human? And when does a baby become a human? And when does a baby... And on and on and on and on and on. Animals don't count. Etc. Some people say animals do count. Some people say they don't. So we, we constantly establish who and what is in the realm of the moral when we believe that we can hold a precept. When we believe that we can hold a precept, everything's in the realm of the moral. There's nothing outside. I am never off the hook. When I eat lettuce, I have to think about what I'm killing. And I have to make active, conscious decisions in particular contexts to decide, is this the right thing to do? If I'm a vegetarian, but I'm working in a colonia on the Mexico side, and somebody takes an entire week of wages, this happened to me, take an entire week of wages and gives me beef stew, because they're happy I'm there, I'm eating the beef stew. So there's, you know, there's, the, it shifts and shifts and shifts and shifts and shifts and shifts. So how are we engaged always in a moral dance? How do we stay in the dance? And for me, the only thing that I have ever been, and this weekend has shown it to me again, is I come here and I'm a sangha and I sit and I watch myself become morally stronger, 
have energy, be able to engage life in this way again with new strength because of all of us. I don't see, that's what builds it. What builds it is vow, sangha, sitting, return, 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 return. And there may be other things that do this for each of us independently too, but we have to become very clear on what those things are that keep us morally alive and dynamic. Because it's really easy to get tired. It's really easy to get tired. We work too much. The world is hard. It's relentless. We're constantly being pounded by violence. So it's, this goes back to, I think, something I said the very first day, which is, what are the things that nourish us? And when the activity goes up and the busyness goes up and the difficulty goes up, we have to pay attention even more so, and man, do I fail at this, even more so to the things that are nourishing. When this becomes more active and starts creeping in and taking over more of our schedule, then we have to pay even more attention to the things, or the seesaw is going to... So the Bodhisattva has to embrace both of these understandings of karma. We have to do the day-in, day-out work of examining unwholesome karma that has harmful ends and renouncing it. We have to confess it and say, no, that is not my vow. My vow is to understand how not to harm, not to hold on to the things that I think are true and ignore the harm they cause. And some of those truths are very hard to give up because we believe so thoroughly that they're right. And that in, even from deep, just places, we believe they're right. And yet we see them causing harm. And so we have to pay attention to that and get really clear on what's going on there. And then we also are paying attention to the wholesome and the seeds they plant And sometimes we surprise ourselves. And sometimes that wholesome comes from places we don't expect. And to get clear on that and to understand that. So to look at the wholesome and the unwholesome, the Bodhisattva has to do that work. The the is the fox eight? Is that case eight? Case eight, the wild fox case, where um, where the monk comes and says that in a past life, he told somebody that a great sage doesn't have to pay attention to karma, and then he became a fox for 500 lifetimes. There is no point where we are so awake and so wholesome that we no longer have to pay attention to the mundane, everyday karma of our lives. That day does not come. And if we think that day comes, then we're a wild fox for 500 lifetimes meaning that we are completely confused and, what's the word I'm looking for, taken over by our impulses. 
When we think we're beyond karma, karma's going to run the show. So there's that whole mesh. And then there's the other side, which is, I'm only conditioned, so even in all of that discernment, I can never be sure. There's never a moment I can say, yes, I have it. And so I sit in silence. I sit in zazen. I take on the mirrors of sangha. I take on the mirrors of the world. I let them reflect back to me what I don't know to the best of my ability. And I stay engaged in that, and I'm seeing my limits and all my unknowing And that is the process of... um, So whether we are doing that here in our spiritual path or whether we're going and doing that in justice spaces or whether we're doing that at our work or whatever it is, that is the path of the world awakening from its grasping. For us, that path doesn't change. It doesn't shift because we're in one context versus another context. And along the way, our hearts will break. We'll want different worlds than the one we have. We'll even work. Hopefully we will work, because the Bodhisattva vow is to work for a world without suffering. And we will constantly be facing suffering. And when we do, all of that control will come up and all of that desire to force the issue will come up. Maybe for some it won't come up. Um, But there's always the risk. And then we return to the wholesome and the unwholesome again. We look at the outcomes, and we keep going, and we keep going, and we keep going, and we know what our nourishing is, nourishment is, and we return to the well, and we return to the spring, and we return to each other, and to people who have similar vows as ourselves, so we can remember what takes care of us and what nourishes us. That's one tiny little blurt out about at least my understanding of karma and um, how we work with it ourselves and with each other and how we take care of each other. I hope that we keep doing that because there's a lot of karma and there's a lot to address and we need bodhisattvas who are rested and nourished and feel love and love and walk arm in arm for a world that no longer blindly causes suffering but really in every moment focuses on one another's joy and one another's care every one of us may that be so May our intention be.
Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.